Welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. I'm your host, Mick West. My guest today is Nick Pope. Nick Pope is an expat Brit, just like me, and he is a uh, British journalist and media commentator who is very well known for writing about uh, the UFO phenomena. He used to work for the British government uh, and handled UFO reports for the British government. So, Nick, uh, welcome to Tales from the Rabbit Hole. Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. It's great. It's like obviously a very interesting time in the UFO uh, and alien enthusiast world. And I, I hear you just got back from Area 51. Yes, indeed. I was covering the whole let's storm internet, uh, let's, storm, let's storm Area 51, the, the internet meme. Right. I was covering that for an upcoming TV show and I spent three days up there interviewing and meeting event organizers, performers, speakers, cops, uh, local people and attendees to to just take the temperature and see what was going on. And it was very interesting. So what what types of people were actually turning up there? It's interesting. It was fundamentally different to the average UFO conference. and, And it was much more the festival crowd and Mm. i think part of that was obviously the fact that the initial let's storm area 51 plan or joke or however you characterize it had by that time evolved into well let's not do that for very good reasons (laughs) let's let's instead try to capitalize on that interest by by running some sort of event and in the end actually it turned out to be three events one in downtown Las Vegas, one in the town of Rachel and the other in the town of Heiko. So so it got the festival crowd. There were more young people. There were more people who, who I, I suppose, would I, I count as part activist, part just people who wanted to turn up, see what was going on and wanted to be a part of something, I think. Yeah, it sounded like, uh, like, like you say, it was kind of like the festival type thing. Uh, Not the you... average MUFON conference where, no. <laughs> where there are a good bunch of people, but uh, you know, average age is probably at the higher end of the spectrum. A lot of retirees, a lot of the same faces. So this yeah. this was something this was something new, and I think that's that's interesting in in what it maybe says about this subject, where it is, where it might be heading. Do you think it's indicative, though, of uh, like a new generation interested in the same type of UFO things? Or is it a shift in kind of UFOs in culture? I don't know. I mean, I think we are, and I'm sure we'll get on to discuss this, we are probably in a new position now to the position we were in around 18 months ago anyway mm. because of the revelations about the Pentagon's ATIP program, the U.S. Navy encounters, congressional interest in all that so so i think things were changing anyway this this kind of came from left field and i don't know i don't know whether it is is going to be something that will last and grow and evolve year on year or whether it was just one of those rather unusual totally impossible to predict internet memes that that maybe can't be repeated yeah, it certainly seemed to kind of grow out of nothing. It was just a bunch of uh, jokes 
and quite amusing uh, memes uh, at start at the start. But then I think a few people kind of took it seriously. Not very many, obviously, but and even the people who were there, I guess, weren't exactly taking it seriously in terms of storming Area Fifty One. Uh, they were just thinking, you know, we'll go there and have a good time. Yes, I, I think uh, very few people were going there. I, I wouldn't even say it was a protest. Um, you know, you can have an uh, argument about whether some of this is is a protest against government secrecy or perceived government secrecy mm-hmm. on this issue. I think it was more half festival, half, you know, this is something interesting and different, um, half, I want to be... It's, it's, I've heard it described as almost like a burning man for UFOs. Right. And I suppose there are people looking back who wish they'd been to the first burning man, which, according to some accounts, was simply eight people on a beach yes. somewhere. So so maybe there was an element of that. Yeah, well, well I guess we'll see if it uh, pans out in years to come. Did you um, kind of talk to people on the other side, like, say, the, the guards or the local officials in the area? Yes, I, I talked to and talked to several cops and security people and in, interviewed a, a couple of them. And it was clear there was something of a charm offensive going on there. I don't know whether they have or will ever release it under the Freedom of Information Act. But clearly there was an integrated multi-agency contingency plan for this involving the U.S. military the the uh, police and various other stakeholders in terms of the local community. And I don't think anyone was realistically ever expecting three million people <laughs> to go. It's, it's easy to click going on Facebook. Yes. It's much more difficult to actually go with something so, so remote. I think I timed it as over a two-hour drive from Las Vegas to, to get there. Yeah. And, and, of course, there's nothing there. There's... there's <laughs> Rachel has somewhere between population 49 and 53, depending on which census you look at, I think. And, uh, and there's, there's no grocery store, there's no gas station, there's no real infrastructure for this sort of thing. So it was quite, a, quite an achievement. But yes, I, I spoke to the people, and at one point they were worried, I think, that maybe, maybe they'd have somewhere like 30,000 people turning up, and that would have stretched things beyond breaking point. There's an argument about how many people actually went. I'm not sure if we'll ever know for sure because they were split between multiple sites. I think, I think somewhere between five and ten thousand, perhaps. Hmm, but it's it's difficult. How do you how do you count the people who turn up on a Friday and then turn up again on the Sunday? I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's funny. Like you talk about people just clicking on on the buttons. Uh, I have a niece in England who was like uh, 15 years old and she she said she was going but <laughs> obviously right. she just she just clips so people around the world have been uh, interested in it but obviously yeah it's uh, so it's well it's yeah like i say it will be interesting how it turns out so you mentioned um a couple of minutes ago about you know how things have changed over the last uh, 18 months and i think uh, it was Michio Kaku recently said that uh, the burden of proof has shifted from uh, you know, people proving that UFOs are real to the military proving that they are not something unusual. Would you agree with, with that? Well, I, I, was, I was actually there in Barcelona when he said that. All right. um, we, were, we were speaking at the same event, and I actually sat down and uh, we sat in the restaurant for about two hours afterwards and, and had a chat 
about all this. I, I must say I was surprised to hear him say that the burden of proof had reversed because I thought, I, you know, I'm not a scientist myself, but uh, I have to say I could suspect that some of his scientific colleagues might be bristling at that, that reversal. Where I think he is absolutely right is that the landscape has changed and that we're in a rather uh, different place now and that this has been elevated beyond just hearsay and and crazy conspiracy websites so it's it's taken to a new level I, whether whether the burden of proof is reversed or not i i think is a question for scientists and uh if 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 that's his opinion as a, a leading scientist then that's fine and uh, I'm, I'm sure it's not universally held but we i listened to his his presentation in barcelona where he said that remark and i think he repeated it afterwards in some media interviews and and of course as i say i I was able to discuss this this whole ATIP US Navy video associated DIA papers um, business with him afterwards and and a fascinating conversation it was. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh I kind of uh, I I'm one of the people who would disagree with him about it being a a game changer because he, he he spoke about uh you know you, you obviously you heard it and he spoke about uh, you know, science requiring evidence that is testable and repeatable and falsifiable. And he said that we now have that with, with these videos. And he, because he thinks that the videos show craft that are performing uh, maneuvers that, you know, kind of break the normal understanding of aerodynamics and whatnot. Uh, have you spent much time looking at these, these three videos that are, have been you know, shown a lot recently? Not a huge amount, and I'll, I'll have to say right up front, I'm one of these people who I hope knows what I don't know. <laughs> so, for example, when I was doing this back at the Ministry of Defense, if we had photos or videos, I didn't sit down and try and start making calculations about distance from the lens or speed or, or anything like that. I simply handed them over to the intelligence community imagery and analyst people and, and said – look, I want to tap into your resources and capabilities in terms of kit and expertise, and you tell me what right. I'm looking at. So, so yes, of course, I've seen them, but, but I have no real idea what I'm looking at and couldn't hope to compete with, with those sorts of imagery analysts and, and pilots and whoever who have had a look at them. So, so I'm following the story, but I'm not pronouncing on it. So when you did show these things to the the expert, did they tell you what they were, and did they ever you know, kind of come up with a uh, unusual interpretation of them? Well, you're you're talking uh, historically at the Ministry of Defence mm -hmm. about some some of the cases. Yes, we we didn't actually have maybe as many photos or videos as as people nowadays might think. I was doing that job between 91 and 94 and back in those days of course you know people didn't carry cell phones and and you know if we got a ufo witness who happened to have a camera around their neck we counted ourselves lucky so and and most of the product that we did get unfortunately was just an object in the sky but with no trees or ground so that you could really get to work on it we did have one or two there was one in particular actually a case from a year before i joined 1990 and this was a 
photo taken in in Scotland. And certainly on that occasion, and I when I started this job, we had a blown up poster sized copy of it on my wall. Mm-hmm. Certainly there, the view from the defense intelligence staff and and also from a unit called JARIC, which was Joint Aerial Reconnaissance and Intelligence Center, their view was yes, this shows a a real solid object, maybe somewhere between, I think it was 25 and 30 feet in in diameter, not one of ours, don't know. And and so, of course, to get an assessment like that was interesting. Yeah, yeah. But nowadays, uh... with these videos, of course, one one suspects, and, and in fact, one pretty much knows, that there'll be someone, there'll be someone in, in the system who has a lot more of the telemetry and other data than we have, um, and and who has done a a proper one hopes a proper assessment on this in terms of size, speed, distance, etc. Yeah, it seems that the, the Navy is kind of saying that you know, even though if they do investigate it and figure out what it is, they probably won't tell anybody because it's going to have classified. Uh, status just by virtue of it being a, a military operation, which is very unfortunate. It, it is unfortunate. And I have to say, I've tracked these various statements that come out from time to time from Navy spokespeople. And I I can't help but think, with my own Ministry of Defense background, I can't help but think that they're slowly but surely getting themselves into a bit, a bit of a mess over this, mm. uh, tripping themselves up, not quite remembering where they are and what they've said previously. I'm not necessarily saying the statements are mutually contradictory, but they're, you know, certainly one or two of them do seem a little inconsistent. And it's it's like, well, what's come on, people, what's going on here? Give yeah. us give us something. And and even I mean I I suppose I know better than most obviously all the the issues about classification and things but i can't help but feel that someone somewhere should be able to step forward and give a sort of unclassified 101 and if the message is look when we use these various terms like uap and uas we we are exclusively talking about you know conventional stuff that we we know about whether it's whether it's commercial drones or balloons or whatever, then I think they could very easily diffuse this situation by saying, look, there's nothing spooky about these. Even if we use the term UAP, we're not using it in the, the way that the UK Ministry of Defense use it. And yet mm. one of the most recent statements, I think it was in response to, I think it was Roger Glassell and or John Greenwald, yeah. said, no, this is a term we borrowed from the British. And, and, and of course, when we in the Ministry of Defense used UAP, we, we absolutely meant it for UFO. Well, you can come back and say, well, fair enough, but most of these UFO sightings turned out to be misidentifications, which is fair enough. But we, we used UAP more in our internal discussions, our policy discussions not really with the public and the media so when we talked about uap we were talking about that part of the phenomenon that we hadn't managed to explain away as as aircraft lights and weather balloons and satellites so so were the u.s navy being deliberate in that or were they just being a little loose with it i don't know 
Yeah, it's interesting all this the terminology with the UAP. Like uh, someone was talking to me a couple of days ago, and they said, "Why did they call it an identified aer- aerial phenomenon?" Because phenomena sounds like something amazing, like something that's phenomenal or this like you know unusual phenomena. But you know, my understanding of it was just being uh, f- aerial phenomena, just something that happens, like something that's in the sky. It's not specifically something strange that's happening. No, we used it simply because I suppose a, a, a meteorological phenomenon might not mm-hmm. be an object, but it may still generate UFO sightings. So, so we thought UAP was a good, good way of sweeping up both objects and phenomena. However, as I say, I go back to the point that we we kind of did mean mean it a little bit more spookily, maybe just yeah. just because we did reserve it for our more interesting policy discussions uh, when we said well look is there something here over and above all these misidentifications hoaxes and delusions yeah yeah i suppose you would say the phenomena in general of ufos and then there's individual phenomena which are individual things that happen but yes it's a tricky tricky thing language is it (laughs) it it is and the devil's always in the detail yeah i suppose like with uh you know ufos what you're talking about there was kind of, on the one hand, there's unidentified aircraft, and then there's unidentified objects, which you can't tell if they're aircraft or not. And then there's unidentified phenomena, which you don't know if they are just lights in the sky, or if they're actual objects in the sky, or if they are actually aircraft. So maybe the Navy should actually use unidentified aircraft for some other stuff, like airspace incursions. And then... uh, reserve phenomena for the more, the more unknown type of thing. Yes, and maybe within the bounds of not wanting to divulge classified information, but maybe some of these senators and other Congress people who have received supposedly a classified briefing on all this, mm-hmm. perhaps some of those people, without crossing the line, could at least come right up to it and say, look, people, this is my best unclassified summary of what I've just been told. Right, yeah. Do, do you Are you still bound by any classification agreements or uh, NDAs or anything like that from the British government? Yes. My, you On your first day in government service in the UK, you sign the Official Secrets Act, and then you sign, you re-sign a sort of reminder on your last day in government service and mm-hmm. what that does amongst other things is remind you that the fact that you've you've resigned or taken early retirement or whatever it is does not mean that your your security oath has somehow magically come to an end no the official secrets act is binding for life right. so the 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 rule the the big part of that of course is not divulging any classified information ever the reason that I can discuss the MOD's UFO work so so openly is because 99% of it has now been declassified and released. If there was some, uh, some information that you couldn't release, could you tell us that there was information that you couldn't release? Yes, and I is could there? probably even... But yes, yes, there is. Um, but what I could then do is qualify it and in, in trying to be helpful with this and saying, mm-hmm. but no, the information that I have, which I'm not allowed to release, is not that we have a spaceship hidden in an Air Force hangar somewhere. Right. It is, for example, 
um, methods and sources by which information about UFOs was gathered from other nations. It is information about the the technical capabilities of our radar system. So, for example, there are some documents kicking around saying, well, if there was something un unknown in our airspace, we would be able to detect it out to a distance of X. So, mm -hmm. so obviously, I wouldn't want to go there because it would give away capabilities of, of military hardware. And with some information on ufos and with other subjects it's information passed in confidence by a a, a third party whether it's yeah. a, a nation or a corporation and or something like that actually probably eight out of ten redactions in the ministry of defense ufo files are simply names addresses and phone numbers of witnesses yes yeah it's uh I think in the do you think the US has a kind of a stronger lockdown on things it seems like they're you know, keeping things classified by default here do you think one country is more open than the other Britain versus the UK uh, Britain versus I, the US I, I find it difficult to judge um, I, I, even though I've lived in the US now since January 2012 I I haven't ever worked in the US system so I don't know people say on UFOs I hear people in the UFO community say, oh, Britain's released its UFO files, France has released its files, um, Brazil, Australia, New Zealand, etc. When will the US do it? And I would imagine that someone in the US is feeling pretty peeved because they mm. would probably turn around and say, well, hey, look, we were the first. Yes, actually. Project Blue Book archive is out there. But then, of course, there there is the separate debate that between the end of 69 when Blue Book was terminated and and a few months ago, the official line was, we're not interested, we don't do anything. So so I guess there is a question about secrecy there. I mean if if anyone if anyone had phoned up the DOD press office prior to December two thousand seventeen and said, you know, what are you do you look at anything un unidentified, they'd have said no. Yeah. So what about the same type of thing in the UK, though? Like, you, you left uh, the DOD in 94. Uh, do you know what happened after that? Yes, I, I should say just on the dates, I, my time on, on the division where I investigated UFOs, that was 91 to 94. Mm. But that was part of a much wider 21-year Ministry of Defense career, which ran from 1985 to 2006 when I took early retirement. Now, I know that between 1994 and 2006, the, the UFO investigation and research went on. And indeed, because it's now been declassified and released, I've, I've seen all those files. The research effort was finally terminated in the end of December 2009, although there are rumors, of course, that work continues which which wouldn't surprise me why why would it not nobody's going to ignore credible evidence of something unexplained in our airspace whether it's in the us the uk or or anywhere right did did you leave like because of any reason related to the ufo program like because it was ending or anything like that no, the, I've seen some internet stories saying that oh, I yeah. resigned in pro protest or something. Not absolutely not true. Right. I I just 
I just took took early retirement because I want to pursue other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's interesting. And 21 years was, you know, these days I think uh, you know, 21 years would probably be considered a long time in an organization. But I've, I've done some interesting, fascinating things, not just UFOs, but obviously in the course of 21 years in defense, one, one does a lot of, you know, interesting jobs postings and but i i'd done 21 years and i i just tried to, you know to i wanted a change so no, right. no nothing ufo related no res, resignation in protest or anything like that yeah that's, that's about the same time i spent in the games industry and i again also just left to pursue other interests uh, i think 21 years of doing anything is, is long enough for for a lot of things um yeah it's, i i asked you you know that that's because I did, did, did do some research before uh, the interview, and there's lots of different stories about you on the <laughs> on the internet. Uh, it's not not all complimentary. Oh, I try not to look at them. I mean, you know, <laughs> the amount of things that have been written about me in the blogosphere. Uh, I I see some of them, but I deliberately don't go looking for all of them. I, I dread to think. Yeah, I mean, there's this story about you saying there was an impending alien invasion. What was all that about? <laughs> um, yes, that was me doing some, one of the things that I do now because of the work that I used to do is I act as consultant and spokesperson when when there are various UFO or alien themed uh, movies, TV shows, or video games, and for one of those. The the part of the sort of rather fun, I thought, marketing campaign was what if there was a real life alien invasion? How would we deal with it? What would the plan look like? And so I drew up blending my knowledge of the UFO phenomenon with with my more general sort of MOD military war fighting. What does a, a real war plan look like? I wrote a spoof alien invasion war plan mm -hmm. and that obviously got put out there and and the company said something like in in the week in which we see the launch of whatever the game was we asked uh, you know what might really happen if if this went down and this is what we've come up with and of course various people in the ufo community got hold of parts of this and and yes the rest is history <laughs> yes there, yeah. there was shall we say there was a bit of a sense of humor failure in in reporters <laughs> always a problem isn't it <laughs> uh yeah because people want to believe certain things and uh, uh sometimes i i try to avoid joking in fact i i've actually got a rule on my website saying that people should avoid sarcasm because it, it goes wrong so very many times that pe people take you seriously when you're you're actually making jokes, so it's usually better to avoid it. Yes, and and tell you what else, government people tend not to do it very <laughs> well. So, for example, we saw that just the other day with with actually some of the media ops people covering the Area 51 story, and they tweeted some a picture, as I recall, of a B2 bomber and and various you know men and women in uniform saying if anyone stores storms area 51 this will be the last thing you see <laughs> and <laughs> and then they had to retract it and i said oh you know obviously that wasn't going to happen but it is just proof if proof was needed that 
government press officers and, and military PR staffs should should not try to be funny. They should stick stick to just doing what they do. Yes, but don't try yes. and make jokes. Don't try and be hip or funny. It just doesn't work. Yes, it's like you've got to know your audience, and and they probably don't know their audience, so <laughs> stay away from it. So like you talked about UFO culture. Uh, you mentioned UFO culture. Uh, do you consider yourself like part of UFO UFOology? Not really. I've I've never described myself as a ufologist or UFOologist or however people. I, I'm simply an ex-government guy who once did this as my my government job. Now now yes, of course I. I um, do some TV shows where I talk about it. I, I do the consultancy and spokesperson work that we discussed on video games and movies and things. But I, and I speak at these conferences, but I, I don't actually consider myself part of the, the community. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. I should, I don't know. I'm maybe it's not even my call. Well, yeah, I don't think there's a, uh, a membership card. I suppose there are some organizations that you can join. Yes, I'm not. I'm certainly not a joiner. I, right. I, I know people in MUFON, but I would would not join. I, I know people in the to the Stars Academy, I, but I'm not. I haven't been asked to join, and I probably wouldn't. I'm 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 just not a joiner of things. I like to to go my own way. Right. So to the Stars Academy, uh, you said you probably wouldn't join it. Is that? Uh... For any particular reason about what you think of them as a quality organization? No, not at all. I mean, I, I haven't had dealings with all of them, but but from the limited interactions I have had over the years with with some of them, and from the materials that I've read of others, I I think I mean when when one reads, for example, the things that Christopher Mellon has written as mm -hmm. as op eds. I think, you know, I could have and indeed have written some fairly similar sorts of op-eds myself, arguing for a more serious treatment of this subject. So when when I see something like that and when I sort of discuss this, as I have occasionally with Luis Elizondo, I, I sort of see, I suppose, somebody coming at it from the same angle. So, no, it, it doesn't reflect any any problem i have with them simply back to the fact that i just as a personality type am not a a joiner of things right do you what do you think of their approach like right now where they're you know doing like discovery channel shows that are kind of you know, somewhat sensationalistic uh do you think that's that's a good way of getting the information out there it's it's a way of getting the information out there. I, th I think it goes back to the fact that there are different audiences for this. Mm. And I don't think there's anything wrong in playing to the pop culture meme and doing those sorts of shows. Having said that, the more important, arguably, more important work that they do is probably things like, like the, the op-eds in the post. It may reach a smaller audience, but it's arguably a more influential and powerful audience in terms of leveraging any change in policy. But I think, yeah. I, I think you have to hit all the bases, and they've probably got a strategy that says, yeah, we, we need to be populist on this, 
and and do those sorts of shows but we need to be niche as well and target that that internal political audience i suppose you get asked all the time uh what you think about ufos like what do you think is actually going on and uh like whether you think you know they are do you think that they are more likely to be aliens or more likely to be humans well i'll i'll yeah let let me give you my sort of basic answer on this Mm -hmm. um i am a fairly firm believer that there will be life elsewhere in the universe and also a firm believer that some of that life will have evolved beyond microbial or or you know simple life and and that there will be other intelligences other civilizations out there some less evolved than us some at our level and others beyond i i suspect um as to whether we're being visited or not i i I don't know. I when when I one of my favourite sound bites about all this, if you'll excuse me, repeating one of my favourite sound bites is is that the skeptics have to be right every day. The believers only <laughs> need to be right once. That's great. So so I don't. You know, I'm not. I mean, maybe it is. I mean, statistically, obviously, I know from my own work that statistically, it is. If you pick a UFO sighting at random it is likely to be a misidentification. And the the second most likely thing is probably a hoax. And the third most likely is some sort of psychological delusion or hallucination or vivid dream. But I, I don't rule out the extraterrestrial origin. And, and like I say, only one of those cases has to be the real thing. And we are in game-changing territory. So, so that keeps me interested and involved yeah i suppose the the main one now that people are talking about is the nimitz uh encounter because they have uh this the video of the nimitz encounter is pretty it's kind of a blurry blob in the distance it's not hard to tell anything from it but they they have uh fairly good eyewitness accounts they have this commander forever uh who talks about seeing this tic tac uh, jumping around and then there's the the other pilot from the other plane and then radar operators and whatnot from the from the ship um do you think uh the nimitz encounter kind of rises up to the top in terms of the most plausible uh ufo stories in the last you know 50 plus years Yes, I, I think it must be up there. And I, I would also say that I would not describe it as a single encounter, but as multiple encounters mm. from what I un- understand. And and the related uh, 2015 incidents. And indeed, I, I would look at this holistically. When, when you look at what the Navy said, I think back in May, about issuing or reissuing guidance to pilots and other other military personnel, they they described this as be, being the result of an. I, I think the word they used was an upsurge in unauthorized incursions into restricted military airspace. So, in in one sense, I would lump all of this together: mm. Nimitz, Princeton, um, Fravor, and and the various other people, pilots, and radar operators who have now gone on the record with this. Yeah, it's interesting to me that uh, you, know, you talk about judging things holistically. 
because I always tend to try to uh, break things down and look at the individual pieces of evidence. And it's, it's always kind of this battle that I have with, with people in, in that, you know, I, I say, I'm just going to look at this video and try to see what this video says. Um, like you could say, for example, the one piece of evidence you just uh, said there, that there was an uptick in incursions uh, into airspace, uh, which could just be an uptick because drones are getting, you know, individual personal drones are getting way more uh, popular and cheaper and longer range and whatnot. So sure. each individual piece of evidence can have some kind of explanation, but can you actually put together all these different pieces of evidence, which all individually might be explainable and then say, there's so many things that there has to be something there. I don't know. It gets to one of the big, big problems we had at the ministry of defense with this. And, and yes, I take the point that each individual incident or case needs needs to be properly investigated. But one of my big complaints was that nobody did any trend analysis. No, very few occasions did, for example, anyone sit down and do what I suppose you would call a, an intelligence assessment where somebody tried to join the dots and say, well, if we put this together, what does this mean? So it was difficult to strike that balance between the individual incident and the overall picture. And I, I'm, not, I'm not claiming to have any right answer to, to the methodology of, of dealing with this. I mean, clearly, in one sense, you've got to do both. Yeah. How, how would you say um, like cases like so the Nimitz uh, case differs from some of the more older classic cases like the Rendlesham Forest case? Well, I think actually Nimitz and Rendlesham do have some some things in common, i.e. being multiple incident cases with, mm -hmm. with a series of individual incidents. Also being cases where there are essentially military witnesses to, to something and a, a paper trail of documents, some of which have been released and some of which presumably haven't, particularly with, with Nimitz and, and such like, um, where, where you can begin to say, well, we've got more than just hearsay here. We've, we've got the, the military witnesses speaking out about this, but here we've got, for example, government documents talking about it. And actually, that's one of the interesting things I think about this whole story is that in all the millions and millions of words that have been written, We've actually got comparatively few government documents, but mm. you know we've got we've got Senator Harry Reid's 2009, I think, letter to a, a to the Deputy Defence Secretary. We've got some of the initial contract solicitation documentation. We've got the DIA letter to Congress sent a few weeks after this story broke in the Times. Um, People like Roger Glassell and Paul Dean and, and um, John Greenwald have solicited various other press officer statements, but we still haven't got that much. But, but to go back to your original question, yes, uh, there are some commonalities, I think. And that's why I, I say this, this certainly goes into the top drawer, if, if there is such a thing, when it comes to these, these sorts of cases. 
Yeah, it was for me. I always kind of found it interesting that when I ask people what their their classic, their, their best evidence was for UFOs, you quite often get these cases that go back to the fifties. Uh, like there was the guy who you know got abducted from his car on a desert highway, like in the I don't know what it's the sixties or seventies or something like that. These very old cases. Uh, but it seems like you know, like you say, we are getting a bit of a a new thing. But was there kind of like kind of a a golden age of UFOs, and then we had kind of a dip, or do you think it's been fairly constant, or or what? Well, I think I think like most things, there are peaks and troughs, booms and busts. I, I think one could say that obviously, going back to the summer of '47, um, the whole flying saucer. Mm-hmm. Um, fever that swept the US and indeed the wider world that was a big thing then certainly in the early 50s maybe fueled to some extent by the difficult but undeniable linkages between this subject and science fiction and, and things like the day the earth stood still but certainly there was a golden age in the 50s and there was a huge wave I suppose in in 67 certainly in the u.s and the uk with the space Um, yeah same same in the 70s and maybe again maybe close encounters of the third kind and the resurgence of science fiction with Mm -hmm. with that and then with star wars maybe that played a part but you know these things these things don't generate i don't think they generate ufo sightings what i think they do is the they create a fertile ground on which people who've had sightings can can maybe step forward and and say, well, I guess this is okay to talk about now. So, yeah. but it 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 comes and goes. It comes and goes. I in in the nineties with the rise of the X Files, then that was a big thing. But not all of the not all of this is sci-fi led. Some of it is just events led. And, and for example, the declassification and release of the British government's UFO files was a big story. And I would say, I would argue that prior to the ATIP story coming out, declassification of the British government's UFO files was one of the most, one of the biggest and most important UFO stories in recent years. Yeah. Well, Slightly different uh, tack here. What do you think about um, essentially the conspiracy theory uh, version of UFOs, that the government is covering stuff up? Do you see any evidence that the government is deliberately hiding any information? And do you think it's impossible? Yeah, not really. Um, There's a very, very detailed essay on my website about conspiracy Mm. theories. And while I say don't, don't, discount everything you know one or two conspiracies do turn out to be true most of the big ones jfk moon landings princess diana 9-11 i I am not convinced by any of that and neither am i convinced by the idea that there is a, a a nebulous conspiracy to keep an alien presence from the public i i do not believe anyone has a crashed spaceship in a hangar anywhere. But I do believe that the US government and the UK government consistently over the years have and still are grappling with something 
that they don't fully yet understand and have a handle on. So I see and and indeed have been a part of what I would call a downplaying of official interest mm. in and involvement with the subject. But I don't see a, a concerted effort to hide hardware, for example. Yeah. So I suppose you're not a big fan of uh, Bob Lazar then? Not... Not a huge fan, but I fall back on the old adage, interesting if true. And, <laughs> and clearly, if, if he has other things to, to bring forward, I, I'm sure we'd all be interested to hear them. Yeah. Uh, I asked on Twitter for questions uh, for you, and somebody asked me uh, a strange question. Well, it was, ask him why any moron would debunk the ET UFO phenomenon. And I think what he's asking there is, uh, what do you think about the skeptics? Do you think that there are people who are too much in the naysaying camp, uh, like too negative? Yes, I, I think there's a spectrum. There's a belief spectrum, and I again, this is one of my one of my commentaries upon ufology. What I what I tend to find is that there's a belief spectrum with extremists at both ends. Mm. So there is a sort of wide-eyed, true believer, it's all true at, at the kind of believer end of the spectrum. But equally, at, at the other end of the spectrum, there's a, a sort of none of this can be true, therefore it, it isn't true. Um, as opposed to doing what the people in the middle should do, which is go in not with those preconceived beliefs, though, though obviously everyone has them, but go in and, and try to do an even-handed investigation or piece of research that is not conclusion-led. Yes. So I think, I think long way of saying, yes, there are, there are, extremists and nut jobs at both ends of the spectrum and there there are some sensible people a lot of sensible people actually in the middle yes yes very true and there's certainly a, a wide range of people in the ufo community uh it does seem to uh generate a lot more passion than the other things that i look at it's kind of strange that even you know i look at things like chemtrails and 9-11 conspiracy theories and flat earth the flat earth people are the nicest people and uh i've got the most hate i think from the ufo people uh it's it's a kind of an odd community it, i think perhaps it's something to do with the the people it attracts but i'm i don't know do you do you get any sense of why there's so much passion in the ufo community well i think i i think Part of it comes from the fact that that with UFOs, a part of the community are witnesses themselves, mm. and and a a part a, a segment of those witnesses would categorise themselves even more deeply involved as experiencers and and abductees or whatever terminology they want to use therefore those people have what they see as a personal connection and investment with the subject in a way that say you know people studying and debating the moon landings wouldn't 
I mean, no, you know, unless you were an astronaut, in which case, you, probably that's why Buzz Aldrin punched that guy. <laughs> Indeed. And and actually, that's that's I suppose a good point. Buzz Buzz has that same personal connection. He actually went to the moon. Therefore, when he hears people say no, you didn't, he feels justifiably aggrieved. So perhaps that's the answer to the question. The witnesses feel that that when people pour cold water on their experiences, they, they are being personally called liars and their personal experience, whatever it was, is being disparaged, so they think. So I think that's why the passion. Yeah, that sounds like a very reasonable explanation. And it certainly rings true with uh, a lot of my encounters with people. They will uh, often kind of berate me with some evidence and then kind of eventually fall back onto that they saw a UFO fly over their car or whatever, and that there was no way I could possibly convince them otherwise. And so uh, yeah, it was basically, if I persisted, then it was like I was calling them liars. And so they tended to be a bit uh, reactive against that. Sure, that's why I guess the James Fox film, I I Know What I Saw, um, right. is, yeah, yeah. is was a good title. That's, that's the one, isn't it? I Know What I Saw. Yeah, I don't remember. One, it, yeah, I think so. We'll, we'll anyway. <laughs> so well, this has been a very interesting conversation. Uh what are you what are you working on now? What's coming up next for you down the pipe? Uh gosh, lots of different things. I'm continuing to appear as contributor on various TV shows, but I'm also actually trying to develop and create some shows myself to, so that I, I have more control over the overall look and feel mm. and content of, of a show. So so I'm doing some uh, writing and development work with production companies and networks. I also occasionally get outside of this subject. So I've, I've written, for example, a couple of sci-fi novels. My most recent book was actually um, a thriller about terrorism and intelligence work and special forces so so again nothing to do with ufos or the unexplained i guess i have my finger in a lot of pies so what's going to be different about your uh, your show that you're you're trying to develop what's the different tone you will be taking i'd i'd like to bridge i'd like to bridge the the ufology with the science a little more mm. i think and um you know, just ground it a little more in, well, firstly, is this possible? And secondly, if it's possible, how would it work? Not not just, here's another case. I, I mean, I think we've all seen those TV shows where people run around and, you know, point in the yeah. sky or, or whatever. It's the sort of ufological equivalent of the, the ghost shows where, where everyone's like, what was that? What was that? <laughs> I, I don't want to, I'm, you know, there are probably some very good shows like that, but that's not the show I want to make. Yeah. So, so I want to I, I want to to explore bridging that gap a little bit and actually asking the next questions. I mean, there's no point having a UFO show about is it real or not, mm. because because you're only going to recreate the whole skeptic versus believer dogfight. Um, why not ask the more interesting questions? Well, look, if it is true, what what next? Yeah, that's a good question. What is next? Do we? Uh, <laughs> I guess you want to try to contact them. Or yes, least, uh, and, and that's study them. Absolutely, that's why my two favourite sci-fi movies are Contact and Arrival, because yeah. 
they speak to the far more interesting questions about could we communicate and if we could what would they have to to tell us what would we teach each other yeah that no, sounds fascinating I'm just kind of going back to your like your work at the MOD like uh, some people say you exaggerated your role at the MOD is there like some reason why people are saying things like that with a you know people say that you there was that false story where you left in a huff because they cancelled the program are there other kind of like false things like that floating around Oh, there's lots of false things floating around, and it's it's self-evidently not true because I I took early retirement in 2006, and yet the UFO program wasn't terminated till 2009. Right. So so that's you know demonstrably false. I I think where where the problem lies is is that all sorts of things get written about me that I don't really have much control over. So for example. Um, I worked for the Ministry of Defense, but one or two people in writing about that have said, particularly overseas conference organizers, where something maybe gets lost in translation, mm. that I was the Minister of Defense. <laughs> maybe that's an easy mistake to make, uh, particularly with, with different languages, or, or maybe not. I don't get to see all that stuff, so I can't... I can't police it and I can't correct it. There, yeah. there was another point that got made. Um, you, you know, some, so some people, some people say, some people in the UFO community try to use me. Some, some people, so therefore, depending on where you sit on this belief spectrum, I have had people try to over-exaggerate my role and I have had people try to underplay and diminish mm -hmm. my role. Now, here's, here's one example of, of the latter. I use in my media interviews the, the phrase, you know, I, I ran the UFO program or the UFO project okay. because the actual situation was that unlike the United States Air Force, where they gave it a project name, Blue Book, we in the UK didn't have that. We simply said that it was work embedded in a particular directorate in the Ministry of Defence. And over the years, that changed. Well, as you could imagine, if I started talking to the media about Secretariat Air Staff 2A or, or Defence Secretariat 8 or Directorate of Air Staff or any, any number of these other things, it would be meaningless. So, so I, use, I use a kind of conversational does what it says on the tin shorthand well i investigated ufos for them i ran their ufo program and then somebody said to the ministry of defense well what was this ufo program and they said well we didn't have a ufo program technically that's true because it never got called anything hmm. but there is and it's somewhere in the uk parliamentary record of proceedings hansard a member of parliament tried to clear this up by asking what was mr nick pope's job between 1991 and 1994 and the answer came back he was posted to a division where his duties included investigating ufos so right. so it's it's like as ever with the internet the the answer's in the middle Yes, uh, I, I see this kind of uh, inflation uh, and or deflation of credentials all the time 
when people oh, want I've to... Oh, I've been told that, yeah, some some people say I was the, the minister, uh, the, you know, I was the Secretary of State for Defence. Other people imply I was the tea boy who, who literally, <laughs> you know, the made the tea and, and did the filing of the papers, so, if indeed such a thing is done in these days. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what what percentage of your time did you actually spend on like UFO stuff and what percentage was on other stuff in that 91 to 94 period? Um, almost impossible to say. I would put it at somewhere like somewhere between, well, I, I maybe 50% by the mm. end of it. My, my other duties covered things like um, actually reading and then doing the security clearance of books that had been written about the Gulf War by people on the Air Force side. Oh, interesting. Um, and doing war games where, again, on, on the Air Force side. Now, I, I was a civilian, but this, this job was, was to do with Royal Air Force matters. Um, so I, we would do the war books and we would do the war games. I think I can say what these things were called now. Things, things like um, Wintex and Cymex and Purple Monarch and Purple Warrior. These, these integrated war games that, that we play to exercise our, our transition to war and war rules. So I did some of that. I did some of the security clearance and vetting of, of um books that people had written and I did the UFOs and it was I think particularly later in that tour of duty I think it was probably about 50-50 with the UFO work but but very difficult to say because because it was events led I would have whole days where no cases no new cases would come in and I wouldn't be doing any UFO work at all right yeah, it's not, not it's like they're on a schedule or anything. Uh, you mentioned the Gulf uh, there. And I think one thing about the the recent stuff like uh, you know, Gimbal and GoFast and stuff like that is that they mentioned uh, seeing them when they were in the Gulf. Uh, did you get reports from the military of like uh, military pilots seeing UFOs in in the Gulf? Not over, not in the Gulf, and certainly during the hostilities. If we did, we we would probably have thought, well, it, it was triple A. Mm, yeah. uh, and the other thing was, although we occasionally relaxed this, our terms of reference were limited to investigating sightings within the United Kingdom air defence region. Yeah, right. Hmm. So. If if a pilot did see a UFO, then like overseas, a, a British military pilot, where would that report go to? Well, they one hopes would have reported it initially, as with most things in the military, up the chain of command. And I hope that that had those sightings taken place, they would have been forwarded back to me. And you know, over the course of the MODs years of looking at this i think we did have some sightings probably from cyprus and the falkland islands and, and places but not not many not right. many was, was there any cooperation with other countries like uh, cross referencing databases uh, for ufo sightings did you share them with other countries very little and and that again was partly a construct of our very 
narrowly defined terms of reference. And partly just, I think, the difficulty in, in identifying opposite numbers who were doing this. I've heard it suggested that the European Union or even the United Nations should take a role in this. Don't know whether it would work or not. I don't think the UN want it. But um, no, there was very little. There was very little cooperation. In in my true believer moments, I I speculate that one reason for that is that if if any of this is true, in terms of being extraterrestrial, the nation that first acquires that technology will have a decisive strategic advantage, mm. and. And therefore, even if you think there's a vanishingly small chance of it being true, it's probably treated within government. Well, it is. I, I know firsthand from the UK. It's, it's treated as a, a low probability, high impact scenario. Yeah, interesting. And so the thinking probably is we wouldn't necessarily want to share this even even with our allies. Right. Yes. <laughs> to keep it to themselves so they can... Uh make their flying saucers and anti-gravity drives. Yes, yeah. indeed. Yeah. And and when one looks, we, gosh, we could do a whole second show on this, but when one looks at those, those research papers that the DIA told mm. Congress they produced under the ATIP program, it, it takes you to some fairly interesting territory in terms of wormholes and warp drive and such like. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if it is true, then that's some pretty... Uh, you know, advanced technology with some very interesting implications. But as you say, probably a topic for another show. <laughs> yes. And of course, my you know final thought on that, I guess, my late father was an aeronautical engineer and he always used to say, well, theoretical, theoretical physics is fine, but someone's got to be able to actually build something. Yes. <laughs> yeah. That's and, and there is that. Sometimes, I, I, as I say, I'm not a scientist and I'm certainly not an engineer either, but some, reading some of this material, you can't help but think there's a maybe a disconnect between this and actually putting something together physically and building it and saying, here it is. Yeah, I think it's all very well saying a wormhole is possible. but okay. Yes, minds far sharper than mine will have to pronounce on, on that. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you very much, Nick. This has been a very interesting conversation, and I think we've probably cleared up some things for some people, a lot of questions people had. And, uh, and probably created a whole bunch of new ones <laughs> in other people's minds, we too. We shall see. We shall see what, uh, what the reaction is, because, uh, like I said, there was, there was a lot of different opinions there on the, on the Internet about you. Sure. I'll well when when you put it on Twitter, and I guess I'll I'll do the same if you send me a link. Uh, sure. I guess we'll we'll see what people think. Indeed, it will be very interesting. All right. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Nice to talk to you. You too. You too. You have a good day, and I'll send you a link as soon as it's up. Thanks very much. Bye.